0: Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was was made known... amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the glorious mystery, the glorious mystery. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you again, once again, for your word, your word that is so full of life. Lord, we could could meditate on just the truth in these short verses for the rest of eternity and not fully grasp them. There's so much here. There's so much that you say to us and reveal to us about who you are and You are so beautiful, and the riches are beyond measure that we can't contain it. And so, God, we pray that you would pour out just a drop today, that you would speak to us by your Spirit and your Word to change us forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The infamous Loch Ness Monster, who is affectionately known by some as Nessie, uh, is, is this character of folklore, of myth, of, of legend, who, who some are, are uh, still searching for. There, there have been sightings in, in supposedly Scotland, in this massive lake, and, and over the decades, really for the last century, the myth has grown, and, and people over the years have become believers. Maybe there's some believers here today who, who believe in the Loch Ness Monster and, and want to see this creature found. And in fact, a few years ago, there were a few researchers who decided they were going to seek out the answers to this legend, this mystery, and they were going to do it in a scientific way. They were going to take modern technology, right? These drones that they can map out the landscape, and they're going to take the drones and fly them over the entire lake. And these drones can actually see down below the surface of the water for up to 1,500 feet. So it can map almost every square inch of the lake. And so they take these drones and, and they fly them over the area, uh, you know, inch by inch. It takes them about two weeks to cover the whole lake. And afterwards, you know, they're hoping that they would find something. And sure enough, they found something, but it wasn't what they thought they would find. They, they found actually a 30-foot replica of the Loch Ness Monster sunken at the bottom of the lake. Apparently, there's a movie from the 1970s that the Loch Ness Monster was featured in. And during the filming of that movie, somehow something went wrong and it sank to the bottom and they just left it there. And so they found the replica of the Loch Ness Monster. And of course, you know, the people who are covering the story there, they're like, aren't you disappointed that this is all you found? And some of the researchers who were interviewed for the story, they said, well, actually, we're, we're not that disappointed. Because we've been searching for this for 25 years. And now we feel like we have a map. Like that they were holding on to hope that now they had a map of the whole lake. And now they have what they need to finally find the Loch Ness Monster. And so now they have a map and they're hoping to find the monster, right? And so the mystery continues. And we all love an unsolved mystery, right? Right? I mean, we all love some kind of unresolved, enduring mystery, whether it's the Loch Ness Monster or the Bigfoot in California or you know, some latest blockbuster movie. It, it might be a murder mystery. It, it might be something a little more personal, right? It might be the mystery of what your spouse means when they say something to you right? It might be like, did, did they really mean I should take out the trash? Or did they really mean that I should just listen and not try to give advice and try to correct the situation? What, what do they mean? Mysteries, right? There's something about a mystery that, that just gets us. And really the only thing that gets us more than a mystery is solving the mystery. There's something about solving the mystery that just makes it feel like I, I understand now. I, I get something that I didn't get before. I, I was once on the outside, but now I'm brought in to some secret that's been revealed. And what was hidden is now known. And so today we're continuing our series in Ephesians, and we've been calling it on being the church. And, and what does that have to do with the Loch Ness Monster, right? Well, as we enter into chapter 3, there's something strange that happens. And in fact, Paul, throughout the letter, one person has described it as the book of Ephesians, is really Paul kind of getting into prayer and out of prayer. He, he's kind of weaving prayer in and out of the whole book. And, and what happens is back in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul starts to pray for the Ephesians. And in the, in the middle of his prayer, he pauses and he, he stops himself from praying and he takes a little break to just meditate and speak to them on what God has done in Christ. And so you have this beautiful chapter in chapter 2 where Paul is just saying, this is what Christ has done. He's brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's He's made the dead come alive. And not only that, but he hasn't just done it for you personally, he's done it for us collectively. And so God has not just saved you as an individual, but he saved a people, a church for himself, a church from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is what Paul is reflecting on. And and Paul, he he interrupts himself, and and now he tries to get back to his prayer. He starts off chapter 3, and and he says he's, he's about to pray. He says, for this reason, and he's about to get into praying again. And then he pauses. And he takes a little detour and the reason he takes a detour, what, what's going on? It's because he hits this mystery, this mystery of the gospel. And that's what I want to look at today. He, he's going to pick up his prayer later, and we'll talk about that next week. But today, in this small detour in Paul's thinking that distracted him, that, that got him off course, we look at this mystery. And so I want to look at today, what is that mystery, and what does it mean for us as the church. And so first, if you're taking notes, let's look at the mystery itself. Number one, the mystery, the mystery. Look at verse one. This is what he says. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now pause there because that's where Paul pauses. If if you try to read past that, you'll notice he never finishes that thought. Some of the modern translations, they just give you this long dash as if, Paul just stopped thinking and picked up a different thought because it doesn't really fit grammatically. And so you start to ask yourself, why why does he pause? What's going on? And and you realize later on in verse 13, he tells you what he's about to to explain here. He tells you that he's afraid they're going to lose heart. That he's writing to these Ephesians and and they're going to lose heart by what he just mentioned. And, And so he's pausing to talk about what he just mentioned, which is what? that he's in prison. I mean, as he starts to describe himself, he says, I'm I'm a prisoner of Jesus. And he's like, well, I got to explain that. And what what happened to Paul? How how did Paul get in prison? The short answer is he was preaching the gospel. If you go back to the book of Acts, you can see the context of what was happening. and, And more specifically, it's because he was preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Right. He's, he's preaching the gospel to these marginalized people who who the Jewish leaders hated and despised. And when Paul says, I've been called to the Gentiles, that's when they say, throw him in jail. We, we don't want anything to do with this guy. And so here we find Paul, who, who's been sitting in house arrest, chained to a Roman guard this whole time, writing letters to the churches from prison. And he's awaiting his trial and likely his death. This is the context. And so Paul pauses to explain that because to the outside world, it looks like God had stopped working. It looks like God has forgotten about Paul and the church. And he summarizes the mystery like this. Look at verse 6. He says, this mystery is, here it is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, he, he is summarizing right there what chapter 2 is all about, right? So I, I won't cover everything. He's just summarizing it for them to be reminded this is the mystery, that God has brought the Gentiles in. These nations who were not insiders now are insiders. And he says their fellow heirs, their they're fellow members, and their fellow partakers, And really, if you know, this this is not a a new promise being fulfilled, right? This is the promise going all the way back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham uh, that all the families of the earth shall be, what? Blessed. He said to Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless all the world, and that promise finally gets fulfilled in Christ, and so here, Paul is saying, this, this is the mystery that no one expected this is how God would do it. See, everybody knew the promise. Everybody knew that Abraham was told he would be a blessing to all the world, and somehow God would do it, but no one expected that God would do it through Jesus, that God would do it through himself dying on the cross. No one expected that he would bring it about by by losing his own life to tear down the walls of hostility. No one expected that the resurrection would be what bound them together. This this is the mystery. What Paul is saying, right? He's trying to build a case for the context of why I'm in prison. He's saying this, that, listen, go all the way back to the promise of God in the gospel in Genesis 12. He says, this is how God works. He always works uh, he always works beyond our awareness, beyond our awareness. There are seven men in history who stand apart from uh, the rest of humanity. And these are the men who have actually, on the Apollo missions, have, have been what they call command module pilots. And the command module pilots are the people who uh, they, they would basically orbit the moon while their colleagues were walking on the moon and you know gathering up artifacts and doing their research on the the lunar surface. These pilots they would they would orbit around by themselves, and so it's a very unique job, very isolating job. In fact, someone say you would be the most isolated person in all the universe at that point. And one of those seven men is a pilot named Al Warden. He was part of the 1971 Apollo 15 mission. He actually spent three days by himself in orbit around the moon. Think about that. Three days in outer space, complete isolation. They say that he was 2,200 miles from the nearest human. That's a long ways. 250,000 miles from planet Earth. And, and he could see all that he could see from up there. I mean, it's incredible. And this is what he said as he was reflecting on it later on, years later. He said, what I found was that the number of stars was just so immense. In fact, I couldn't pick out individual stars. It was more like just a sheet of light. There are billions of stars out there. The Milky Way galaxy that we're in contains billions of stars, not just a few. And there are then billions of galaxies what does that tell you about the universe? Listen, that tells you uh, that we just don't think big enough. We just don't think big enough. In other words, what he's saying is, is reality was beyond the realm of his awareness. It, It was beyond what he could understand. To bring it back to this text, in other words, what he's saying is just because we aren't aware of something doesn't mean God isn't working in something. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what Paul is saying. Just, just because we're not aware of it doesn't mean God isn't working in it. This, this is the mystery, right? And so what happens is when we lose that perspective and, and we get stuck on what su- such small thing might be, it, we, we gain fear. That, that's what happens, right? And so if we can't understand it, then clearly God isn't working in it. And I don't know if you've ever done this before, but sometimes in my life and probably in your life, you, you limit God to what you are limited in. You limit God down to the, the abilities and the understanding and, and the logic and all the things that we are limited by. You, you bring him down to your level and shrink him into this little tiny God who makes more sense. Yeah. Because to, to admit that he might know more than I know and, and to admit that he's not limited but he's actually infinite yes. yeah. is hard to fully understand. Yeah that we have a God who's boundless. He's, he's immeasurable. And, yeah. and so to think that He could be limited in some way is really just a reflection of my foolishness. It's really a reflection that, that I, I struggle to comprehend a God who's not just like me. That's when fear starts to rise up. And, and really our fear is, is about our idols of control and power. We start grasping for control. The moment I feel like God isn't doing what I want Him to do, I, I start grasping for control with my kids. Right? I, I want them to, to do what I say and act like I want. And, and the moment I, my life is not going the way I want it to go, I start grasping for control because I want them to turn out the way I want them to turn out. Right? I want them to be the people that I want them to be. And I, I want them to be somebody that, that honors our family and I'm proud of and, and they love Jesus and all these wonderful things, Right? so I start grasping, start grasping for control at my job, trying to make a name for myself or prove myself to the boss or, or make sure everybody knows how good I am and competent I am because I have to show everybody. Because if I don't control it, then, then who's going to know? Who's going to say something to me? You see that? There, there's this sense that, that I have to do something to, to control the situation because if, if I can't understand it, if I can't be all in with it, it must not be right. But Someone once said the finite, which is us, cannot contain the infinite. We can't limit him down to us. God's work is always greater than our ability to worry always greater. It's always greater. And Paul is saying that this principle goes all the way back to the gospel promise. He's applying it to his suffering, and we're going to get there in a second, but he's saying, go back to the gospel promise to Abraham that God would bring in the Gentiles. Nobody expected this is the way it would happen, but that doesn't mean God wasn't working. He's at work. He's at work. And listen, if if we knew everything that God knew, we would ask exactly what God did. Because we we are so limited. We we don't understand even what we're asking. We don't even know what we should ask. And so when we ask and we don't understand and we question and we don't get it and and God does things that we don't like, it's not because he's not competent. It's because he's more competent. And our role is to trust him, to cast those cares upon him, because he cares for us, and he's working it out. And so this is what's amazing. Paul goes on to talk about how he works out that mystery. Let's look next at the, at the ministry. The ministry. Look at verse 7. This is, a, this is great. He says, of this gospel, speaking about this mystery, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now, first, remember, Paul just said that he was given this revelation of the gospel. This mystery that was hidden is now made known. And so he's given this revelation of this this wonderful thing that God has done in Christ. But now, he says, I've been given a commission. I'm I'm not just given a revelation from myself, but now I'm called to go out. And he says, I've been called as a minister, or, or you might translate it, servant. The Greek word is actually diakonos, which is what we get our word deacon from, right? So Paul is saying that, that he, he's a, a deacon in, in a sense that he's, he's serving and ministering and, and doing what God has called him to do for the gospel. But listen, it's not because he was worthy. God didn't call him because there was something in him that, that God saw as, as his abilities. God called him because of what God was going to do in him. Yeah. And so Paul says in verse 8, he says, I'm the very least of all the saints. Now, bear with me for a second. This is fascinating. Paul takes the superlative, the least, in Greek, and he does what's linguistically impossible, and he turns it into a comparative, so that in the original Greek, you, you should translate it, Leaster. Like, that doesn't make sense grammatically, but Paul is now making up words. He's literally making up words. I, I am the Leaster. Of all the saints, I, I am the lowest of the low of the low. It's kind of like in First Timothy 1, he calls himself the foremost of sinners, right? In other words, what Paul is saying is, when it comes to the saints, I am the leaster, I'm the least, at the least, at the least. but when it comes to sinners, I'm the foremost. I, I'm the chief of sinners. Do you see it? Paul's saying, I have nothing in me, but I'm I'm a big sinner. He he was unlikely and unworthy. I mean, we have Paul's story recorded in Acts chapter 9, right? If you go back and you read Acts chapter 9, you you see that Paul was actually Saul. That that was his his name that he was born with. And uh, Saul was a self-proclaimed Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he was an elitist who, who was a radical and, and was seen by all the, the religious leaders of the Jewish community as kind of this up-and-coming young leader. He was somebody who people respected and saw as he's going to do something great in his life and his career. He was trained by the greatest rabbis in the time. And, and so this is Paul, and he wanted to prove his faithfulness and prove his radical nature. And so Paul, when he hears about this movement of Jesus and all these people coming to faith, especially among the Gentiles, Paul gets so angry, he decides he's going to go persecute them. He's going to go crush their movement because he was hateful. He was a bigot. He, he was a racist against all the, all the Gentiles. And so Paul would go from house to house and tear people out of their homes and take them to jail. He was there when Stephen was stoned in approval. This was Saul. Everybody in the community would have thought he's the last person who would ever follow Jesus except Jesus. And then Jesus meets Paul or meets Saul on the road to Damascus and knocks him down with blinding light and calls him to himself. Radical conversion, but he doesn't just call him to himself. He calls him to none other than the Gentiles. I mean, listen to how crazy this is. Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, the preacher. But not just any preacher. He becomes uh, the preacher to the Gentiles. The messenger to the Gentiles. I mean, here was this unworthy, unlikely, hateful, bigot of a man who's now brought in to write half the New Testament. And Paul calls, or God calls not only Paul just like this, but but the whole church. Look at verse 10. This is what, what he says. He says that God has done all this so that through the church, somebody say the church. The church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. The the people of God who have this embodied message, the the people of God from every nation is what Paul is saying, from every nation are now one in Christ, and we have this mystery of the gospel that we were once outsiders who've been brought in. We were just like Paul, we were the Leasters. We, we were the unworthy folks. We, we were the people who, we were made in the image of God, so in a sense we have worth and value and dignity, but in another sense we're unworthy in our righteousness. Yeah. Do you understand that? We're unworthy in that we can't stand before God because we're so full of sin. Paul says, I can't do it. But God saves a church like that. So that we become the least we become the unlikely and now we become the people who carry that mystery because we embody the mystery we how how could God save a people so full of sin mystery of mysteries and yet that's what he does and so now God turns around and he makes his his work known through his church And let me tell you the church is full of the least likely people the church is full of the foremost sinners and i'm not talking about like used to be sinners present day sinners and, and you you can always tell who's new at our church let me just be honest with there's a honeymoon phase there's a honeymoon phase when people come to a church, our church, any other church, and, and you show up at church, and, you know, people are greeting you, and people are nice, and they're saying hi, and, and there's coffee, and hole-in-one donuts, and all kinds of nice, nice stuff, and and uh, it's great. You know, you listen to some music, you listen to someone talk, hopefully it's not terrible, and then you go home, and people might say, oh, look, this church is doing great things in the community, and, and look at the diversity, and blah, 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 and they say, pastor, this church is amazing, and, and I'll tell you, I I tend to agree. I love our church. And this is a wonderful place to be a part of, but eventually reality hits in. Eventually reality hits in, and you realize this church is just like every other church, full of the foremost sinners. The foremost, not like middle grade sinners or the leaster of the sinners, but the foremost. And what happens is you start to see this. This church is really unlikely. Mm. Unlikely, mm. and it's it's really our arrogance to think that it would be anything else. Yeah. Yeah. That it would be anything else. I mean, sin in the church should should never shock us. Yeah. It, it it can make us sad, and it, it sin is is hurtful. I mean, it hurts us. It hurts other people that we sin against. There, there are consequences to our sin. Sin is painful. It can be traumatic. Those things are true. And so sin can make us sad, but it should never make us shocked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we shouldn't be overwhelmed with the reality that someone might be a sinner just like I am. Yeah. Because this is who God chooses. This is who God chooses to make his manifold wisdom known. Like there's there's just a diversity of sinners so that he can show the diversity of his wisdom. It's manifold. He chooses people that everyone else has given up on. He chooses people that everyone else thinks has gone too far, done too much could never be saved. And, and listen, it's, it's in our weakness that we have our best witness. It's in our weakness. This is the mystery of the gospel that, that Paul's saying, my ministry is to share the mystery that God would save someone like me. That, that's the mystery. And so the ministry is not sharing all the knowledge I know or sharing how uh, you know, important I am or sharing all the progress I've made in my life. It, it's sharing the mystery that God would save anyone like me. And so when we lead with our weakness, this is where the church has so much power, where the church has the ability to say, I, I am that person. I am the foremost sinner. Not I was, but, but I, am. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I am the leaster. But this is the God who works. This is the God who works through his church. He's a God who is patient with me. He's a God who forgives me. He's a God who transforms me. This is our God. And as we embrace our weakness and have this witness that there's a promise of glory. I love this last part, and this is the third point, the glory. Look at verse 13, the glory. He says this, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is amazing. We come now full circle to Paul's point. Remember I said, this is all really a detour. He got a little distracted by the reality that he's in prison. And the reason he gets distracted is, remember, they're, they're concerned about it. He says, I don't want you to lose heart of what's happening to me. And, and you might ask yourself, why would they lose heart? Well, the reason is because their theology is just as bad as ours. Because in their world and in their mind, they're thinking suffering equals shame. Suffering equals failure. Suffering means something is wrong with me, something is wrong with God, something is wrong with the gospel, it must not be working, because clearly if it was working, my life would be better and Paul's would be better and everything would be going great. And he says this is not how it works. In fact, your your theology is twisted in that you're missing what God is doing. Paul reminds them there's, there's purpose in his pain. But his emphasis, I find this fascinating. His emphasis isn't on the fact that God gets glory out of his suffering, which is true. His emphasis isn't even that he gets glory out of his suffering, which is also true, that God uses our suffering to bring about transformation in us, right? But listen, his emphasis is that his suffering brings glory for them. Now, this is fascinating to me because he's saying that my suffering is your glory. It's similar to what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice. Listen, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Yeah. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, you, you could spend all week, all month thinking about this, but somehow that there is a mysterious union that Paul is speaking about, that there is a union between us as his body us as his people, his church, he's he's saying that because we're the church, my suffering is not just my suffering, and your suffering is not just your suffering. What he's saying is the church never suffers in isolation. The church never suffers in some kind of individualistic way, But, but every time we suffer, my suffering is your glory. My suffering is your glory, and your suffering is my glory, and somehow we are connected in this, that God works through our suffering to bring our glory, and it makes sense because God's way of glory is always by way of suffering. It's always by way of suffering. See, There's a fascinating word in the Old Testament, and I'll close in a moment, uh, for a worm. It's tola, and and it actually can also mean scarlet, and there's lots of other words for worms in the Old Testament, but, but this word in particular uh, means a specific kind of worm. And it's native to the Middle East, and, and uh, it, it was well known and, and well uh, familiar with, with, the, with the culture of the day. And, and it's kind of similar to the Cochineal of Mexico and, and North and South America. And maybe some of you are familiar with that, but the Cochineal is, is similar in that if you, if you crush this, this small little creature, its blood actually turns into this beautiful, radiant uh, dye that people for centuries have used to make these beautiful garments and all colors and, and beautiful things, uh, but, but it's this kind of dye, and it's similar to that type of things with the, with the Tola, and so uh, it was often used for, for the, the wealthy and the noble and, and people who wanted to have these beautiful things created. And, and so it was kind of rare and precious and, and worth a lot. And, and yet it was this tiny little bug, this worm that really didn't look like much. You, you look at it on the outside and it, it doesn't seem like it's worth anything at all. But, but yet when you crush it, Its blood turns into this beautiful, radiant dye that everyone desired. And so the Hebrew word for this worm, which was often translated scarlet, actually came to mean something more like the glory of the worm. The glory of the worm. In other words, the scarlet glory of the worm was was in its crushing. It was in its crushing. Now, why do I tell you all this and, and give you this background? Well, because when Jesus was headed to the cross... When Jesus was headed to the cross, everybody thought that God was failing. When Jesus was was arrested that night and, and everybody came to capture him, just like Paul, and he's carried off for his trial, everybody thought that God was failing. When Jesus was standing before these men and he's on trial and and they condemn him and the crowd decides to send him off and and choose somebody else over the savior of the world, it seemed like God was failing. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross and they lifted him up and and everybody's mocking him and spitting at him and, and everybody had abandoned him at that point, it seemed like God was failing. And then when Jesus, as he's breathing his last breath, cries out Psalm 22, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seemed like God was failing. But listen, Psalm 22, when Jesus cries that out, Jesus is bringing to our mind the whole psalm. And there's this strange little phrase in Psalm 22, which is one of the most magnificent uh, Christological messianic psalms in all the Bible. This is what he says in verse 6. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. I mean, in this greatest of the messianic psalms, there's this strange phrase that he is he has prophesied, Jesus has prophesied to be a worm, but not just any worm. I mean, you guessed it. The word there is tola. It's this specific scarlet worm. And what Jesus is speaking about as he's on the cross and he's taking upon himself all of our sin and he's being crushed by the Father in judgment for us, he's speaking about the way of glory. This is the way of glory of glory. What he's saying is, it was in the crushing that God is actually working. God was working out this mystery from all eternity, this mystery that he would unite all nations to himself through his son, but he would do it through the crushing of his son. He would do it through the scarlet blood that ran down the stripes of his back. He would do it through the thorns on his head and the spear at his side. He would do it through the suffering of the innocent Savior for guilty sinners like us. This is the way of gospel glory. One life for another life. It's the exchange of love. It's his suffering for my glory. His blood for my beauty. His death for our life, right? It's the scarlet blood of Jesus that that takes care of our sin-stained souls. As, As Isaiah said before that, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Paul is saying this is the mystery that God would bring about his his salvation, his glory through the crushing of Jesus. As the old hymn writer said, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. His suffering is our glory. And now our suffering is for the glory of others. This is what happens. We take on the life of Jesus into the fellowship of his sufferings. And so as we close, I I just want to ask you, how, how is God working his glory in and through you in whatever may be happening. Because this is how he's working. And and sometimes we we don't know. We don't know for months or years or even a lifetime. And we don't know because God hasn't revealed to us the, the greater work that he's doing. But we can be sure of this, that he is doing something through our suffering. That it's never wasted. Because this is the way God works. That he always works through that crushing. And that our suffering is always bringing about his purpose in us, in others, in wherever God may be working. And so some, someday we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to see how he was doing that. Someday we'll be able to look back and, and point to that that's how he was working and that's how he was working and there's the glory right there. That's what he did. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are eternally grateful that you would suffer in our place. It was for the joy set before you that you endured the cross, the joy of knowing that it would bring about our glory. It would bring about our salvation, our redemption, the the eternal life that we would have with you. And so because you knew that, you could endure anything. And so God, we're so grateful for the good news of the gospel, that mystery that's been revealed to us, that's been shown to be so true over and over for 2,000 years now. But now we live it out and we share in that. And so God, we pray that you would use us, use us to bring about the good of others, to bring about the work that you are doing, that the manifold wisdom of God might be shown in the church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.